The sovereignty of God is not just a theological idea that we just know for information. It intersects the very lives that we live and the trials we experience. And I love that song reminding me of that. Jesus is reigning, and he's close, and he's within. And uh, whatever trial and tribulation you might be going through, rest in that, that it's for a season, and it's for our good, and there's a lesson to be learned and a chance to grow closer to our Savior. Well, there's a handful of passages and topics in the scriptures that are difficult to teach as a pastor and just as difficult to hear as an individual, not because they're hard to understand, but because they touch upon topics that are very personal. Today is one of those topics. As we move through the book of Mark, um, we've reached one of those, divorce and remarriage. And my prayer for each of us this morning is that we allow the Spirit of God to illuminate our understanding of God's word so that we rightly apply these truths. So as we approach this text, as we do with any passage, let's seek the spirit of God for understanding and seek our savior to help us live through these. And due to the nature of the topic, I will be available after our business meeting or later in the week if you have questions and wanna speak privately. There's too much to cover in one sermon. Um, and so my job here is to just cover this passage introduce some ideas. At some point in the future, I would like to do more of a family series, um, but no one sermon is going to cover everything. So if you do have some questions, please reach out. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started, and let's open up the Bible to Mark chapter 10. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. I'm going to read the whole section that we're going to study today. So getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him, and again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to him, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of, his, of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him again about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Yes, we are going to go through this passage today. So <laughs> we'll get through this. Um, and I just want to be very sensitive to all our backgrounds and, and situations. Doris has touched all our lives, many of our lives, uh, in different ways. So the first thing I want to start off is Jesus and disciples have left home in uh, Capernaum, and they're now traveling to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. This expression, beyond the Jordan, is known as Perea, and you can see on this map Jesus starting to head to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. We're talking, you know, five months away he's going to be crucified. We learn from Mark that Jesus is teaching, and Matthew reveals he's also healing as well. Soon, some Pharisees are going to arrive on the scene. And although the English says testing him, the underlying word means entrap. They're going to try to trap and trick Jesus, which is an impossible thing to do, but they're going to attempt it anyway. And the language, the actual original language, implies that there was other things they were doing to test Jesus. So this wasn't the only one. They chose a topic in their day, as it is in our day, 
a topic that can easily offend and cause division and controversy. Matthew captures the full question. Matthew 19.3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? That's the entrapping part. Notice the Pharisees said that for any reason at all. Now, the word for divorce literally means to send away or release from marriage, to permanently separate from. That's the idea. And the word for reason is interesting because in the original language, it means charge, complaint, or grounds implying guilt. So any reason that implies they've somehow have failed. Now, let's not forget, not too long ago, John the Baptist was in prison and eventually lost his head because he pointed out Herod's unbiblical divorce and unbiblical remarriage. And so Jesus wisely, and this is a good lesson for all of us, if you find yourself in a testing situation with an unbeliever, look how Jesus, he responds with a question. And that brings the topic back from the opinion of men to the authority of God's word. That's how we need to respond. And most questions that uh, I have found over the years, particularly people who are uh, antagonistic towards Christianity, they have refined their questions to trap you. <laughs> and so it's best to come back with a question than actually try to attempt to answer. Um, and so they, they mislead because they say for any reason at all. So Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? In other words, what does the law, the word of God say? And the Pharisees respond in Mark 10, 4. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, this quote actually comes from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 5. So let me read that context. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, the original husband who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gave you as inheritance. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home for one year, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And uh, that, I believe that is still practiced in Israel, that one year. Now, the question is, what is the indecency in her? First, it can't be adultery, because at the time, if adultery was discovered, the death, the, there was a death sentence by stoning. So that's not the indecency. Second, it, can't, it cannot be that she turned out not to be a virgin at the time of marriage. And back in those days, if you weren't a virgin at the time of marriage, consummation of marriage, you were stoned. Uh, third, the word that indecency is always connected into some kind of unholy behavior. Let me give you an example where this word is reused again in another passage, Deuteronomy 23, 14. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, and he must not see anything indecent, same word, among you, or he will turn away from you. So this is something significant. Now, fourth, the remaining uses of this word indecency are always connected to some inappropriate use of the body. You'll see nakedness uncovered, things like that. The scripture doesn't give us any more details. However, it's clear that it's a, such a significant issue. It's connected to the body, 
and it's not something frivolous. However, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the reasons for the divorce for divorce had become quite frivolous. Listen to this one historical document at the time of Jesus. The house of Shammai, this is from the Talmud. These are where rabbis kind of do commentaries on the, on the scriptures. A man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity. So this is the conservative rabbis. Now, let's go soon to the other one, since it is said because he has found in her indecency in anything. The house of Lel, this is the liberal side, even if she spoiled his dish, that's grounds for divorce. And uh, so when my wife was cooking, I, I said, I'm glad this isn't spoiled. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right. Got to have a little bit of levity here, right? My wife is an amazing cook, and she never spoils anything. Uh, in fact, I told my mom that she's a better cook than my mom, and my mom says, that's good. <laughs> So it goes on to say, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. That shows you ludicrous. A meal, how it's cooked, should not affect the status of the marriage. Uh, E.R. Akiba says, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she found no favor in his eyes. So bad meals, a better looking girl, and now you have grounds for a divorce. That's how frivolous it was. But that's how frivolous it is today. We see frivolous reasons for divorce, not only outside the church, but yes, sadly, it's in the church, those who bear the name of Christ. Fortunately, Jesus clarifies the interpretation for us. In verse 5, we learn that divorce was permitted because of hardness of heart. In other words, reconciliation between the husband and wife was so impossible that to keep it from escalating to something worse, far worse, Moses permitted divorce for a peaceable outcome. And I should add that divorce is never commanded in the Bible, though it is permitted. Therefore, it's a choice, and it's the responsibility of the individuals to ensure it's for biblical reasons and that they understand the implications for themselves, the other spouse, the children if there's involved, etc. Remember, Hebrews 13:4, the marriage bed is to be held in honor. Uh, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Even Solomon had wisdom at this time. Ecclesiastes 9:9. I, I've been going through the audiobook of the Bible, and I just happened to go through this book uh, a couple days ago. And this is what he says: Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which is given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Marriage was to be enjoyed. That was God's design. Now the text in Deuteronomy reveals a particular limitation. I just wanted to cover this momentarily. The divorced spouse was forbidden to return to the original husband. And if you think about this, this would be a legal loophole for adultery, right? I'm with you. I'm now going to divorce you. I'm going to go with that person, have an affair. It's all legal. Now I'm going to divorce you and go back there. That would be legalizing adultery. However, Jesus continues and appeals to scripture, which moves the argument from divorce to design. Because this is the issue. You've got to step back and say, what's really God's plan for marriage? And Jesus goes all the way back to the garden, to Genesis 1:27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you ever wondered why God designed marriage, because he didn't design marriage for the angels, right? They're created once, at one time, and that's the limited number. There's no more, no less. 
That's how many are. But for God, he creates this interesting couple, male and female. And the reason is, it's a picture, first and foremost, of Christ and his bride, the church. Christ is the faithful groom, and the bride is to be the faithful wife. And we learn this from Paul in Ephesians 5.22. Let me read that. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husband in everything. Husband, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, Paul says, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So when we think about marriage, you will hear marriage is just a cultural context. It's something that man invented. It's, it's good for creating children and population. That's a lie. Marriage was designed by God with a picture of salvation of Christ and the bride. That's the beautiful picture that it, it references. Nevertheless, the individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see it that she respects her husband. Then Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24. So he goes a little bit further, still in Genesis, which means he's affirming Adam and Eve in the garden, the whole story. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this particular verse is loaded with significant and profound truths. First, we learn about the new married couple. They must leave the authority of their parents, and they are to be independent, establishing their own family unit. And if they don't do that, that will create conflict in the marriage. Second, they must be joined to one another. This is the cleave, leave and cleave. You've probably heard that before. And they depend upon one another to meet each other's needs and to serve one another. And for those of us who've been married, we know this. We know that we have blind spots, we have weaknesses, we have failures, and that spouse is a sanctifying element in, my, in a marriage. And in my marriage, Stephanie is that for me. She helps me, and I am a far better person than I am without her. And hopefully, vice versa. <laughs> They depend upon one another to meet each other's needs, to serve one another. This is not to say they don't get help from family and friends at times, but they're primarily helping and serve each other and building a family to serve the Lord. The one flesh reveals now how they're complete, one, how they complete one another. And together they define marriage as one male and one female. This is a biblical definition of family. And should there be children, the children are little, literal expressions of the one flesh because they come from the chromosomes of both, which is always amazing. So all this reinforces that their union is not to be separated. And then Jesus, in this passage, adds a significant insight into the role of God the Father. Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now this join means to yoke, like two oxen yoked together to plow a field. The marriage union is not only physical, but there is this spiritual component as well. It affirms God's role and authority and involvement in a biblical marriage. He joins them. He yokes them. 
So marriage is not merely an act of human will, but the sovereignty of God is permitting and affirming this union, and in many, but not all cases, resulting in children. If you go to Psalm 139, right, David says that you weave me in my womb. Even each of us were born through the permission and sovereignty of God allowing us to come into this world to live. So what, we're, what this is saying when Jesus says what therefore God has joined, God is giving his blessing, his support, and his protection to the couple. And this applies both to believers and unbelievers. They don't have to be saved and have faith in God for God behind the scenes to be allowing the marriage and helping the marriage because that is good for them. So this applies to the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice the warning, though. It's an actual command. Let no man, that's the command, separate or divide. And here we see the permanence of marriage being reinforced by our Lord. And remember what the, the words of Malachi, and this shows you the state of affairs in Israel um, when God closed the Bible, the Old Testament, and waited 400-some-odd years for Christ to come on the scene. This is what Israel is like. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And this word treacherously in the Hebrew means to be unfaithful, not trustworthy, betray. That was the state of marriages at the time that Malachi wrote this, 400 years before Christ came. This is not a unique thing to Israel. This is a worldwide problem. So don't lose sight of the fact that this is God's design. It is what's best for the couple, the children, the community, and even the nation. If you study history, particularly Romans where we have a lot of written down, you'll see before they crumbled, the family was broken. And that's how it always works. However, when sin enters the marriage, if not biblically dealt with, it will strain the relationship and potentially break the marriage. The only exception, I, I want to bring this because I want to be fair, the only exception where divorce was commanded in the scriptures is when the Israelites returned from Babylon. You might remember Ezra and Nehemiah two different times. They faced a situation where the men had married the foreign women, which was totally forbidden by the law of God. They were told to put away their wives. Now, we know, what's interesting is we, if you just speculate here, and that's what I'm doing, we know that probably some of the women converted to Judaism and abandoned their idols. Great, you can stay together as a family. Some families may have actually been broken up. Some may have left Israel with their families to stay together and not be under that law. But again, it's all speculation. What's really surprising is that the scriptures don't even reveal what actually happened after this call to repentance in this particular issue. But let me just stress, that's a worst-case scenario. It's an exceptional situation, and it doesn't apply to us at all, okay? I should add, though, that our country and other places around the world have redefined marriage. Uh, we have now legalized same-sex marriage. God doesn't recognize those marriages, okay? He sees that as simply the acts of homosexuality. When someone is born again and departs this lifestyle, they are free to remarry. And remember in Ephesians, such were some of you. You were washed, you were cleansed. We must remember that all sins are forgivable in Christ except for two, and they're, they're really one and the same, unbelief and apostasy. Those are the two sins that can't be forgiven. Now, we don't have any more comments from the Pharisees at this time, so it looks like Jesus shut down the conversation and they moved on. They failed to trap and entrap Jesus. However, the conversation with the disciples did carry on. Verse 10. 
we learn that they carried on the conversation at the house where they were staying. Now, we don't have their specific questions, which is too bad. I would have loved to heard this, uh, Peter say, hey, Jesus, here's my question. But we do have Jesus' response in verse 11. Mark reveals how God sees remarriage when there was no biblical grounds for divorce. Mark covers both husband and wife perspective, which is interesting. So Mark is writing to a Roman audience, and he saw in that community men and women divorcing each other. When you look at the Hebrew Bible, typically it's the man who's doing the divorcing. So Mark covers both, just to be clear. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Jesus' point is this. When there are unbiblical grounds for divorce, the spouse responsible for the divorce, when they remarry, they commit adultery against the original spouse. This may help you understand why the scripture says, you know, certain people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and when the list is described, it's a, it's, um, it's a pattern of life. And in that is adulterers. And so you can see that that implies not only these marriages that are being broken up, but just adultery in general. Now, Matthew reveals Jesus' biblical grounds for divorce, which is immorality. So Matthew, in the parallel account, adds some important details. Listen to this. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been that way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality... And marries another woman, commits adultery. And in Greek, the word immorality means fornication with another individual, whether they're married or unmarried. In the Old Testament, such an act by either spouse would have resulted in stoning and death. And then that other spouse who didn't sin would be free to remarry. Well, Leviticus 20.10, if there is any man who commits adultery with another man's wife or one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And like I said, since death occurred, the faithful spouse will be free to remarry, as is stated in Romans 7.2. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband died, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, I don't know about you, but fortunately, we don't stone people today for this sin and many others because we're not the Israel's theocracy. And I would like to add that although a faithful spouse has grounds for divorce in this adulterous situation, I want to stress it's still important to seek reconciliation whenever possible. However, if the spouse is unrepentant in their adultery, refuses to be faithful, then the faithful spouse has grounds for biblical divorce and would be free to remarry. And, and so this is the, the dynamic. This is the challenge, right? An affair happens. What do you do? Many times it can be overcome if there's true repentance. But if there's not true repentance, that, that spouse that's being sinned against has the right. Now, this is clear-cut in Scripture. Many pastors and theologians argue this is the only grounds for divorce. However, that's not true. The Scripture does actually speak more on other grounds for divorce. Now, these situations I'm about to describe require more wisdom, more prayer. The next grounds for divorce is abandonment. And if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. It's an important passage uh, to mark in your Bibles to be aware of this. Um, and I'll go through this. We're going to pick up at verse 13. So abandonment, biblically defined, is desertion. 
This is traditionally understood as the individual leaving the home and never returning, cutting off all support and contact. That's the idea. And here's how Paul begins to address it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. <laughs> I don't want to get into that right now, um, but another time. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, in this passage, the unbelieving spouse leaves. It means to abandon the marriage. And by the way, that word leave is the same word as separate, divorce. Okay? So this is not a temporary separation. This is permanent. This is divorce. In other words, divorce is the one. Um, in other words, divorce is then one is free to remarry. Okay? So if, if you're abandoned, you are free to remarry. By the way, Paul adds this phrase, in such, at the end. And then the translator supplied cases. So this kind of comes at the end, in such cases, and this is to help us understand what Paul's getting at. Now, I just want to take a moment on this one because this is a very controversial phrase. Uh, in such cases, Paul was saying similar to this because abandonment typically shows up of someone literally abandoning the family, but there can be similar expressions of that to a limited degree. Now, Wayne Grudem, who I respect as a theologian, um, he goes further. He argues that divorce may be legitimate in other circumstances that damage the marriage as severely as adultery or desertion. In other words, he's really opening up the floodgates here. And that, I think, is unfair to the intentions of the text. Uh, so I think we have to tread very carefully with such a broad statement. Abandonment like I said, typically as one leaves the home, but there may be something very similar to that, and that's going to take prayer, wisdom, and conversations to determine it. On a side note regarding abandonment, this is something that is very fascinating. In the Old Testament, there's a situation of a concubine. So in the Old Testament, you would get married and you'd have a wife. Unfortunately, they would also have a concubine. This is someone that is um, with them. They're married to them, but they're not considered a wife. They're kind of like a uh, a lower-class wife, okay? That's just how it was in the Old Testament. God wasn't endorsing this, but he did permit it. Um, now, the rights for these particular concubines consisted of three things. If the spouse did not do these three things, then that concubine was free to leave. And it consisted of this, food, clothing, and conjugal rights. Such a concubine had less rights than an actual wife, but it gives us a sense of what abandonment looks like. When these provisions are no longer being provided, and this woman is literally left on her own, starving, no shelter, abandoned. That's a picture of abandonment. Now, additionally for clarification, we know from scriptures that believers are not to knowingly marry an unbeliever. This is always a challenge, isn't it? Right? You go in, you're thinking they're saved, and you find out later. So in this 1 Corinthians 7 passage, all right, they were both originally unbelievers. Then one of them got saved, and then this conflict happened where one says, I don't want to be around you and your Lord. I'm getting out of here. So that's the issue because in 2 Corinthians 6.14, we have this one that says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, 
for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. So this verse not only applies to marriages, but other spiritual enterprises, right? This is why we got to be very careful in ecumenical movements. We can't just partner up with just anyone uh, because we may be uh, getting into a situation where there's a conflict. Um, and this is rooted in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7.3. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. These are pagans in Canaan. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But the clearest text of why believers cannot marry unbelievers is found in 1 Corinthians 7.39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband's dead... She is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. And I tell you, I, over the years of pastoring and counseling, uh, I have met couples, you know, who rejected this text. They loved someone, they didn't want to be alone, and they compromised. And they married an unbeliever, and it left nothing but trouble in their life. Therefore, abandonment traditionally means walking out, leaving the marriage, and abandoning all responsibilities to that spouse. So in review, the two clearest grounds for divorce are adultery and abandonment. And that's pretty straightforward. And if these were the only two, and the death of a spouse, in these three situations, the other spouse is free to remarry. And I should mention that Paul does clarify 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, 11, that if the grounds for divorce are unbiblical, they're not free to remarry. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 7.10, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, okay, divorce, no biblical grounds, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So this is a really difficult teaching, uh, especially in today with all the conflicts that we have. Now, if these were the only circumstances that couples faced, I'd be done preaching, we'd go home and high five at the end of the day, all right? It's clear for everyone, but the discussion doesn't end there. Consider the following four difficult categories of life situations and scenarios. Physical abuse of the spouse. Physical abuse of children. Unrepentant addiction. This might be drugs, gambling, pornography, fill in the list. And unrepentant intentional evil. This might be verbal abuse, emotional manipulation, etc. These are really the four major categories. Now, the root cause of this may behavior, and I want to stress this, may be due to some mental condition. I want to be sensitive that something may not be right in that person's mind. It may be emotional. It may be chemical. It may even be spiritual because they're really an unbeliever. It may even be outright pride and sinful flesh. So I don't want to just say, you know, I don't want to generalize this. There could be a lot of extenuating circumstances. Um, in fact, uh, I, I, can, I can share this. So uh, Dr. Mayhew, who was the former dean of the seminary, um, shared with us that early in his marriage, he started becoming like super depressed and despondent and couldn't work, uh, couldn't take care of his wife. It was a very bad situation. It turned out he had a chemical imbalance. Once he got on a certain medication, he was back to his good old self. So sometimes there are these circumstances that the symptoms you need to look beyond that and look at the root cause. And the root cause, like I said, may be those things. But as you can imagine, in each of these scenarios, there is endangerment, there is genuine suffering, and what is supposed to be the safest, most protected, and sacred, relation, sacred relationship in the, on the planet. 
Our Savior would never treat his bride in this way. We always must remember that, that everything in marriage is to picture Christ and his bride. So what does Scripture teach on these matters? It may surprise you to know that the Scripture doesn't speak of extended marital separation. And I can tell you for also from experience that, that when a couple is in conflict, all right, it is best, unless there's physical harm involved, uh, that is best not to temporarily separate, okay, because once people get out of that situation and they get the relief, they go, I'm not going back. My life is great. Now, that's not to say temporary separation isn't important. Sometimes it's necessary and appropriate. But long-term separation, months and months and months, the scriptures speak nothing of that. Um, but temporary separation seems to be implied in certain places. It seems to be allowed and necessary. So think about this. In any conflict, the church has church discipline. And if they actually carried that out properly, you can deal with the individuals. But also, the world has laws and government has rules. That needs to be applied as well. And what happens sometimes in marriages is the people, due to shame, embarrassment, and don't want to let the world know, uh, they keep it a secret and they deal with this problem and it gets worse and worse and worse. And let me just tell you, again, I'm not expecting anything. I don't know anyone's personal lives. But if you know someone who's going through something and there's something like this going on, involve the legal authorities. Because when there's physical abuse going on, it never gets better. It only gets worse. Now, in each of these four categories I mentioned, immediate and temporary separation for safety combined with possible legal, legal and spiritual intervention is the best course of action. And, and, and never, ever keep silent on these matters. It's a very serious thing. In fact, Ephesians 5.11 says it right here. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Sometimes you may be the, the only person who can stop this individual before it extends to someone else. But every situation is different, and therefore every situation requires wisdom, prayer, but always biblical action. And the purpose of temporary separation is to provide protection, to provide support, and hopefully address the sin that's going on. But this doesn't always happen. As Paul, Apostle Paul says, but to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she remain, must remain unmarried. There may be a situation where like, you know what, I got to get out of this. And that's your choice. And you have that freedom. It's just understand those aren't grounds for biblical divorce, and therefore you shouldn't, you shouldn't remarry because then you would be committing adultery. Reconciliation, if possible, is always best. Now, I, let me just stress, this is, this is not easy. And I never want to ever assume that anyone's particular situation uh, and judge it from the outside. How could I? I didn't live it. I wasn't there. I don't know what's going on. But it is a hard road. And sometimes reconciliation is just not possible due to unrepentant sin. And since these types of situations are different for every couple, they have to be handled case by case. You just can't say, always do this. And that's something the church has done. I've seen it. It's horrible when the pastor will blame the wife or the husband. Again, they'll, they'll be very judgmental and not deal with it biblically. Now, I will stress in these kind of situations, let's not lose sight that this is where long-suffering comes into play. 
It's truly grieving that a marriage, which is supposed to be a safe haven, becomes, becomes an unsafe harbor. And although the marriage is intended to describe, although this passage I'm about to read is describing suffering outside of marriage, it certainly can apply for suffering within a marriage when you're dealing with unrepentant sin. I'm going to read this because it's a very important principle for marriage and outside of marriage. For believers, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Again, this is originally written to believers facing persecution from the world, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in the name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And it begins first with us. What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I know just from reading and history and so forth that sometimes a spouse may have to make a difficult choice. They may choose for the name of Christ to remain in a horrible situation. And if someone were to make that decision, we as a church should pray and support and do our best to counsel and guide them through that process. But it's never an easy choice, and it's an individual choice. But suffering, always, if it's done for the name of Christ and in obedience to Christ, will result in reward by the Lord. And don't forget this. When we come to the judgment seat of Christ, and I'm, I know this is true, there's, a, there's something that the Lord invites each of us into, his suffering. Paul talks about this, filling up my cup of suffering for Christ. Because when we get to the judgment seat, we're, we're not dealing with our sin, we're dealing with our reward, there's going to be a moment for each of us right, where we're going to be with the Lord, and he's going to say, you suffer for me. And we're going to understand that he suffered for us. And there's a, there's a relationship there because we identify with him. And so I never want to oversimplify these situations. They're horrific and difficult, and they have to be taken one by one. But the choice to remain, if for the cause of Christ, is noble, but make sure it's wise too, Okay. Don't just be a martyr. Get counsel in these difficult matters. God can use each of us, but we must follow his wisdom because this is what he says. And this is very an important balance to it. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You can't save anyone. All you can do is witness to the truth that you're saved and that that person could be saved. So don't th think that just because you stay, that's a guarantee and a promise. So again, Paul is balancing the dynamics here. Now, with this backdrop of such difficulties that arise in marriage, it's not surprising that in the disciples in the Matthew passage say this. The disciples say to Jesus, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And, and I think at the time, most of these guys were single. So they really didn't have a perspective of marriage quite yet. They probably all want to be married. We know Peter later got married. Jesus' response to disciples for implying being single is very insightful. Listen to what he says in Matthew 19, 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. So they're born, they're going to be single, that's just by default. 
There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs, sorry, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He was able to accept this, let him accept it. So this is where we get into Jesus saying, yeah, singleness is an option, but not everyone can accept this. And keep in mind, some of these men, like I said, were probably single at the time and had no idea. Now, the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, chose to be single, spoke on this matter. 1 Corinthians 7, 7, Yet I wish all men were even as I am myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, each one in his own manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I. Now, when Paul says that, he's, he's assuming that they are going to remain a widow, remain single for the purpose of serving the church. All right? That's the idea. And, that's, and he goes on to say, um, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul makes it very clear, hey, if you're going to be single, then use it for the Lord. But if all you're going to do is be preoccupied and it's going to be a stumbling block for you, then seek after a spouse. Paul will go on in the same chapter and add that marriage is difficult. 1 Corinthians 7, 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. He's, you know, we, we, you think about all when you got married and you're at the making the vows and everything else, you're thinking this is going to be bliss for the next hundred years, right? And I love the candor of Paul. And it's like after time, you go, yep, all marriages will at some point struggle um, to one degree or another. I think all of us who've been married and are married can attest that marriage can be difficult at times. Both spouses may be born again, but neither spouse has been glorified. Sin will enter the relationship, and only those couples truly submitting to Christ and his word and engaging in genuine repentance and bearing tangible fruit of change and truly becoming Christ-like, they will be able to handle these conflicts. See, it's easy to say, I'm sorry, right? But if you don't change, after a while, that sorry means nothing. However, when true, two people truly submit to Christ and his word, loving and respecting one another, there's no greater earthly relationship to enjoy and find satisfaction. That's that Ecclesiastes 9.9, enjoy the life with the spouse whom you love because your life is fleeting. Now, and this is what we who are married are to show to the world, right? We're to show them that a Christian marriage works. And we need to be transparent about it. We don't want to say a Christian marriage is perfect. <laughs> don't ever say that because it'll never be true. But what you can say is, is this marriage is fulfilling. Um, it's interesting. I have, we're all, many of you have Facebook. Um, and because I signed up with certain friends, I get posts, right? I don't really watch it too often, but I probably check it once a day. And I have friends from high school now, you know, so they're 56-ish. And many of them have been through some difficult marriages and so forth. And you can see, and they're not believers. They're lonely. They're, you know, they're left. They're abandoned. They're experiencing these traumatic situations, and it's, it's heartbreaking because um, it's difficult. Now, as I wrap up, uh, I recognize that one sermon is totally insufficient to address these weighty matters. And like I said, at some point, I'd like to do a series on family and marriage and singleness much more in depth because the scriptures actually has quite a bit to say. However, I do think it would be helpful to provide some wisdom and practical advice. This is by no means meant to be an exhaustive list but it is some overarching principles based on what I've seen over the years when I've counseled marriages. 
um, and things that my wife and I have learned as well. Uh, and so I'm just going to kind of hit these uh, fairly quickly. So let me advance the slide here. Okay, so let me start with the singles. All right, yes, at one time we were all single. And we don't want to look back on that too often. <laughs> all right, so focusing on growing and serving Christ and his church with your gifts. The principle here is be holy and be helping. The most important thing you can do as a single person is be holy and be helping. I have a whole bunch of passages here. I'm not going to read them all, um, but these are very, very key. Second one, and I think this is very important, is pray and trust in the Lord's timing to bring someone along who desires to serve alongside you in the Lord and is a compliment to you for mutual love and support. I can't stress this enough as a single person. Discover your gifts and start serving the church. Okay? Do that with all the time, love, and passion and passion you have for it. If you're serving the Lord and you're content in that, and God truly has a spouse for you, then when that person comes along, guess what? They're going to meet you where you're serving. All right? If they aren't interested in doing what you love for Christ, okay, then they should be rejected. And that's why serving is one of the greatest filters for finding a spouse. Because if they are one to come along and be yoked with you in doing this, there's a red flag there. And, and I'll be honest with you, with, with Stephanie, man, I gave her the drill for the first 30 days. She dreaded our dates because I'd sit there and ask her this question, this question, this question. Because <laughs> I wanted to make sure she was compatible. I mean, I was in love with her immediately when I saw her. It was love at first sight. And, um, but I still had to make sure. And, and so I, I, I knew I, I was going to serve the Lord. I was going to teach, maybe even preach eventually. And I had to make sure she was committed to that too. And, and turned out she was. She went down to precept. We learned to study together. And that's always been one of the, the, the great bonds that we have is we both love God, Christ, and his word. And we both love the study. Now, decide on a spouse. Discern their commitment to Christ. There is always red flags if you're willing to look. I'm not saying they have to be perfect. They may not have a head of gold as the bride described uh, the Solomon, um, but make sure they have a commitment to Christ, his word, and the church. Because at the end of the day, when you get into a conflict, if you're not both under the authority of God's word, you've got two different authorities in the house and you will not resolve the conflicts. So there has to be, and that means you're walking in obedience and commitment to the word. Pray for discernment and pray for any hidden to be revealed. That is a really important prayer request. Trust that God is looking out for you and that if a man or a woman comes into your life as a potential spouse, pray that they that God would expose something that, that says I should not get married or that I need to address something in their life. Um, and then lastly, listen to godly people. There's those who know you and may even know things. And, uh, and so if we are, and this is a balance, right? If you know someone's getting into a relationship, you know, on one hand, you want to celebrate that. But on the other hand, if you know stuff, you have an obligation in a wise and loving way to share your concerns. Um, because if you don't, you're partly responsible if they enter in a situation that was not good for them. Okay, uh, next one is the married. I'm going to speak first to the husbands. It's very fascinating in scriptures. There's actually very few commands given to the man, but what commands are given are pretty significant. It's leading and serving, okay? The first one is 1 Peter 3, 7. Love your wives in an understanding way. Guys, we do this all the time. We fail to, say, to take into account our wives and, and the way they're made and built. 
And so we don't love them in an understanding way. That's 1 Peter 3, 7. But the toughest passage is Ephesians 5, 25. Love your wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church. And he died for the church. And uh, when I have, in the rare few times I've been able to do this, it makes a difference in the marriage, right? Um, But it's easy to get into habits where you just don't sacrificially serve. And this is a very difficult message to preach with my wife in the back row. (laughs) Because she has a memory that will not forget anything, which is a good thing. All right? Because she remembers all the things I forget. But it's that. And then, uh, so those are the two, all right? And uh, let me go to the women now. Sorry, ladies, it's your turn. Okay. Wives, it's follow and serve. It's be submissive and supported. And it's kind of funny. I was with my family uh, uh, some time ago, and we got on the topic of marriage. And <laughs> I wanted to be have a little fun, but also be honest. And so I said, yeah, in the Bible it talks about, you know, the reason our marriage works is because my wife submits to me, <laughs> you know. Well, they hear that word submit, and immediately they're like, well, we're going to disagree with that one, John. You better just keep your Bible a distance from us, you know. But the world's understanding of submission is completely wrong biblically. If you look at Christ in the church, doesn't he give us as his bride some responsibility, some authority to be involved in? It's not meant to be a, this this uh, tyrannical man's leading and ruling. The wife is to be giving input, and the man is to be listening. It just means ultimately the man is accountable. He is where the buck stops. God's going to hold him accountable for any ultimate failures. But a wise man would listen, and Proverbs 31 talks about that. So when I say submissive, I'm talking your co-ruling in, a, in, a, in that kind of way, uh, but the man still is the ultimate decision maker as he's held accountable. And it says be supportive, Colossians 3, 18, 1 Peter 3. And it says be godly and be serving. Proverbs 31 is the, probably one of the hardest passages for women because uh, it's just this woman is amazing at what she does. All right, now, what about husbands and wives as a couple? All right, I, I share this not only from my own experience as a husband, but also in many counseling situations. These are the big ones. You get these under control, you'll solve 90% of your marital issues. Guard your words. Once it's been said, very difficult to take it back. Guard your attitude and your anger. This is a big one. This goes for both. Guard against bitterness and unforgiveness. Be kind and forgiving. That complements it. And be intimate. These, every counseling situation I've been in as a pastor, these are what's broken. And what happens is that you get into this cycle. Let me read the passage. I think this is the one I want. Ephesians 5.33. I should have put it on the, on the slide. Uh, and uh, there you go. Thank you, David. Nice move. Unifying, oh, I did have it. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. So here's the cycle. If the husband loves his wife, the wife normally responds with respect. If the husband stops loving the wife, then the wife stops respecting the husband. Then the husband says, you're not respecting me, so I'm not going to love you. And now that he's not loving her, I'm gonna, since you're not loving me, I'm going to continue not to respect you. And that's the death spiral. And every conflict in marriage comes down to that. And this is where uh, the passage we preached on, the glory of humility, Philippians 2, is the key. If Christ, who is without sin, comes to sinners to reconcile them, having done nothing wrong, and goes to the cross... 
and he humbles himself in order to take that first step of peace, then each of us have that responsibility to take the first step of peace. That's why the principle out of that passage is without humility, there can be no reconciliation. You're going to be offended by your spouse sooner or later, unintentionally or intentionally. The question is, what do you do at that point? Um, there is a passage about the anger, about not letting the sun go set. That was in there as well. And then lastly, um, this one, the past. All of us have it. It's real. It's difficult to live with memories. Um, but I always begin here. Remember what Christ has done for you. And that passage is about washing you and cleansing you. You're forgiven. That past, as far as God is concerned, is the old and it's dead and it's buried. Walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. That's the key. And focus on growing and serving Christ and his church with your gifts. It's back to being holy and helping. Idleness is never good. And, and this is the challenge of serving. It's hard sometimes. Sometimes I even appreciate it. But if you have gifts, use them. And uh, don't wait for someone to tell you what to do. Volunteer it. If, it's, if you see a need, meet it. Um, but again, I'm oversimplifying. <laughs> There's a lot more. But these are just some of the things that I have found quite helpful. So as we consider the Lord and his wisdom on marriage, he knows what's best. May we submit to him and his word. Let us love our spouses, be faithful to him and one another, and guard against premature judgment of others. We don't know your background. We don't know your circumstances. Let us not judge others. I have been in churches where, man, they try to find everything out in your background and use it against you. It's horrible. And in this church, we don't want to do that, and we're trying not to do that. Because there's always, as you know, there's more than what meets the eye. May we be a church that prays and supports our singles, Pray and support the married and pray and support the divorced who are faithful serving the Lord and pray and support the widows. And we have all those in this small body of ours. We made it. <laughs> or I should say I made it. You endured it. <laughs> um, but let me go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Where would we be without it? How can we navigate the circumstances of life, varied and challenging, the trials and tribulations, the brokenness of people, we need your wisdom, we need your help, and we need your spirit to respond in a godly way, not to exacerbate the situation, but to maneuver through it. And I pray for each and one of us who have a past or have circumstances that are difficult to live with, that you would continue to remind us that we are forgiven, we are sustained, that we are complete in Christ, and that we can still be useful. And uh, Father, you know the desires of our heart. And uh, you know when it's appropriate to give us those things, and you know that sometimes it's important to withhold those things. Help us to be content in these circumstances. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you, everyone. We'll pick up back in Mark. Yes, Derek. Did you call to see if two unsaved people marry and one gets saved, not divorced? Correct. Unsaved person. Correct. So, so um, if I misspoke, I meant to say, just because someone's an unbeliever doesn't give you the right to divorce. They have to leave. Yeah. Good. Thanks for clarification if I was unclear. All right. Uh, we're going to have our business meeting in, uh, let's just say, about 10 minutes, 1120. Let's say 1130, if that's okay. Uh, just give people to, to, to go forth. If you have those handouts that my wife gave with the church directory, if you could give those to her. Uh, if you haven't finished it, now's the time to finish it. And if you don't have one, raise your hand. Stephanie may have one on hand.